0: And now coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's World Whiskey Day. And this g- week, Gary and I are joined by Ken McLeod and Paul McKincaid to discuss the work of well-known whiskey lover Ian Banks on the Coot Street Podcast.
1: And, and, and we're off. And thank you, thank you, Ken, and thank you, Paul, for, for, for joining us on World Whiskey Day, which seems like the most <laughs> appropriate time of all to talk about Ian Banks.
2: Um, yes i should should go down and get myself
1: a glass of whiskey shouldn't i just to celebrate yes and since it's 8 a.m where i am i'm going to beg off on that for this time (laughs) (coughs) hello ken welcome to our podcast i was simply saying hello ken welcome to our podcast oh hello
3: Hello. it's great to be here (laughs) (laughs)
0: We should probably admit to listeners that we had all sorts of difficulties connecting. So for us, it's sort of like, at last, we we, we we can get on with this. But thank you both. I guess we're here to celebrate the publication of of Paul's book on Ian Banks, which is part of the Masters of Science Fiction series from the University of Illinois. Uh, and I understand that, to sort of throw it the other way, Ken, it, it must have been some kind of a... Thro- a, a trip down memory lane parts of because you were sort of really quite close with the writing of a lot of the work, weren't you, Ken?
3: Yeah,
4: I knew Ian in high school, and we remained friends ever since, really, and we were neighbors for quite uh, quite large stretches of time. Um, he he and I lived in London, within more or less hailing distance, and more recently for the past for the last 20 years or so,
3: um,
4: on opposite sides of the first and fourth. So there was only a short train ride across the fourth bridge between us
1: one of the things that I thought was fascinating about when you were in high school and I guess the two of you discovered Enterzone about the same time and um, I'm saying this because being a critic, I like to think the critics ever have any influence on anybody and apparently, Ken, both you and and Ian were fascinated by the editorials about science fiction coming from um, M. John Harrison and John Clute.
4: That's correct. Yes, it was in New Worlds Quarterly.
1: New Worlds um, Quarterly. Uh,
4: yeah, and we we were both quite pleased with Interzone when it first arrived, obviously, but New Worlds was the precursor, and the, we 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 enjoyed the big scale traditional SF,
3: and
4: we also liked the more new wave stuff like at that time which meant Ballard and Dish and so on. Yeah. And we did find that some of the traditional SS like uh, Heinlein and Larry Niven and so on, enjoyable though they were, had some literary and political and philosophical shortcomings which... Uh, uh, Harrison and Clute really anatomized in a very entertaining way.
0: <laughs> it was a call to arms, really, that they issued, wasn't it?
4: Well, in some ways, it could have been, and we—it was one that we certainly rallied to. Ian more rapidly than I did. <laughs> Because the great thing about Ian from the very start was how determined he was to write. And he started writing seriously when he was still in high school. Unlike me, who made some pathetic penciled attempts at writing space operas and ran out of paper and pencil about four (laughs) four pages in...
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, now let, let me ask you, Paul, when did you start really being aware of Ian? What, what attracted you to wanting to write a book about him? That's two very different questions.
2: Uh, okay, first, what first attracted me to Ian? I was involved in running a science fiction convention called Mexicon. Uh, I was on the programming committee. And the first Mexican, we'd had Alistair Gray and Russell Holborn as our guests. And we wanted to repeat that to get the same sort of serious literary buzz to it. And at one of our committee meetings, uh, Greg Pickersgill, who was the chair, came in waving a copy of a paperback of the Wasp Factory, which had just come out, and insisting that we read it. So I read it. And then I went out and got Walking on Glass, which had just come out in hardback. And we knew that Banks must be one of us. He had to be. You know, you couldn't write those books and not know science fiction. So I wrote to him and invited him to come Hmm. along. So I've been, I was reading him from, you know, his first novel. Kept up with it ever since. As to why I wrote the book... Um, it was just after he died and there were two sorts of obituaries I was seeing in the mainstream press it was all Ian Banks, mainstream writer oh and he occasionally wrote these science fiction books that we don't talk about Uh in the science fiction press it was Ian Banks, author of the culture and we don't mention the other science fiction books he wrote Mm-hmm. and we certainly don't mention the mainstream books he wrote and I, I actually got angry at that because you can't separate the two right. Ian Banks who wrote uh, The Wasp Factory and The Bridge is is the same Ian Banks writing use of weapons and accession and you've got to you've got to recognise that there's an interplay between them and nobody else nobody was talking about it so I thought you know okay, I'll propose a book in which I try and cover everything, the whole range of his work. Well, Ken... Fortunately they took it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I was saying, fortunately, they took, fortunately Gary and his co- cohorts took it.
0: Well, I was just going to say to, well, yeah, yeah. to, to Ken, do, does that gel with your experience of spending time with, Ken, with Ian when he was writing the books, that really the dichotomy between Ian M. Banks and Ian Banks really was a public one and not one that was intrinsic to the work itself?
3: Absolutely. He
4: took the attitude that um, the same skills were being applied to the science fiction as to the more, I would say, more mainstream fiction. And his analogy was of playing a piano and playing a gigantic church organ or cathedral organ. The skills are the same or very similar, but the volume and scale are considerably greater. <laughs> <laughs> um, he it, you, It's worth recalling that he wrote... Several of the space operas, the two I think two culture novels, and uh, against a dark background. And it was only when these seriously
3: failed to get
4: accepted by any publisher that he wrote. A nice, mainstream, middle-of-the-road novel about everyday country folk called The Wasp Factory.
1: <laughs> I doubt that's he ever wrote quite, that book. That's, that's not exactly what you'd call English pastoral charming. <laughs> oh, yes, of course it is.
2: <laughs> well, Have you ever been to the English countryside? It's exactly like that. <laughs>
1: one of the things i am curious about uh and either one of you because you you mentioned this early that uh, before he had published anything he was writing this massive half million word catch 22 like thing called the tashkent rambler was that it yeah is any is anybody ever going to see any part of that
2: oh, hopefully not oh,
4: no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ken, I think, is the only
2: person who has seen any of it. Oh, really?
4: Well, I read all of it, and so have some of Ian's friends from school days and university days. But uh, and I, I, there must be out there somewhere at least 14 readers for publishers who have read at least the first few pages. <laughs> <laughs>
0: just none who will admit it uh, <laughs> um, I I found it a very
4: enjoyable read but it's, it's completely unpublishable I would say
0: do, do you think um, some of the interest in it and the early books is compounded by the fact that Ian went back and rewrote some of the early
4: oh sure He, after the success of the first two so-called mainstream novels, and
3: he
4: he started revisiting his um, first drafts for the science fiction. And the first one that he was able to pitch, I believe, was Consider Phlebas. Which I think was the one he had written most recently, and was therefore easiest to to um, improve. And that landed with a bang, as I'm sure Paul can you know recount better than I can.
2: Yeah, I mean, A. Uh, he actually wrote after writing the Wasp Factory. It was the the, the you know the next novel he 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 wrote after that and then he put it to one side because the wasp factory sold so he then moved on to writing uh, Walking on Glass and, and and the book with the title O oh, that he later cannibalized into the bridge ah. but uh, uh, I, I don't know whether his publishers expected him to come up with science fiction at that point, I suspect they didn't. I mean, the re- his readers certainly did. I, I, there are any number of reviews of Consider Phlebus when it came out saying, We've always expected that banks would write science fiction, we just didn't expect it to be space opera. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, he certainly hit with a bang, but I think he it, it must have probably taken his publishers very much by surprise.
1: Now you said that I think Macmillan wasn't used to publishing science fiction no. in the UK at that time. So, uh, mm. so I guess what I'm curious about is how did this bifurcation uh, happen? Because the Wasp Factory had done well, and then uh, considered Phlebas, which is very science fictional. It's not, it's not gently moving into science fiction territory. It's not dabbling. It's full out, you know, full bore space mm. opera. Was it with that? Did, did that cement the division between Ian Banks and Ian M. Banks, just the fact that you had two such very different novels, each successful in its own way? Well, as I understand the
2: story, his publishers were nervous about publishing science fiction. So uh-huh. they they were asking for a pseudonym for, for it. And uh, I know he... Uh, I think it was something like John B. McCallan he came up with originally his two favourite whiskies at the time <laughs> two
1: favourite whiskies yeah speaking yeah. of the whisky
2: eh? and, uh, and then finally he just uh, conceded to family demands to include his middle name in the uh, in, in the book so he became Ian M mm-hmm. but I, I don't think that he saw it as being a different thing I think it was the publisher saw them as different and he he saw it as as very much on a, on on the same the same level
1: <clears throat> Ken is that your memory? Yeah, I think he fell
4: into a very in a way for what was a long time quite a comfortable rhythm of alternating writing a science fiction novel and writing a mainstream novel and in the first few years that was relatively easy to keep up what looked like phenomenal productivity because he had written the first drafts of three or four space operas already. And it didn't take a lot to get them back, get them into shape. I mean, Ian used to joke that the main reason why the Wasp Factory was accepted was it was his first novel that he had written a second draft of.
2: <laughs> um, I'm not sure that was a joke. I think that may have been deadly
0: serious.
1: Well, it was true. <laughs> <laughs> it could be both. <laughs>
0: What what I'm curious to ask about this, while we're still talking to some degree about the beginning of of Ian's career and the you know the early stages of it, of it is that I mean yes these book, you know these books his writing career started in the very late '70s he started writing, and you know the book started appearing in the mid to late '80s so he's writing in the mid 1980s I suppose. How much can you separate his view on what he was writing from that time? I mean. This was Thatcherite Britain that appears to have had a really profound impact on the work and on his politics. Do you think that's a fair observation?
2: Ken, I think, can probably answer this better than I can.
4: Well, I would say it did, yes. Ian grew up in what you might call post-war welfare state Britain with the occasional... Unstable labor government. <laughs> um,
3: um,
4: and satirism had quite a, quite a profound effect on how he saw, how he saw the country he, lived, he in lived in and um, what, he was what
3: he was trying to do. So
4: you see the effects of satirism and
3: uh,
4: Kind of delineated in all of at least the mainstream novels, and this massively utopian counterposition to it in the culture novels,
3: particularly.
4: But also, interestingly enough, you see within the culture novels this element of, if you like, self criticism of utopia. The situations in which the utopian society goes wrong, make horrendous mistakes, even at the very first one, um, the first published one, consider Phlebas, we see the culture from the outside,
3: from the view of
4: one of its schools. And in Use of Weapons, which was the first one he wrote, The protagonist is a mercenary for the culture and who is used, like himself, as a weapon. Including all his flaws, they are weaponized by the culture and its minds. In look to Windward, you see the long-delayed effects of a massively failed intervention that the culture did and I don't think it's any accident that um, Banks dedicated that novel to the Gulf War veterans uh, one of whom was uh, an uncle of his uh, or a cousin I believe yeah.
1: that, that seems to be a continuing theme that is as, as well intentioned as the culture may be it it keeps messing other people up in various ways yeah
2: and it, it messes itself up yeah and there's there's i th- i think there is an ambivalence about the whole idea of utopia that runs all the way through his books uh you know, it it's it's made specific in in some of the later uh novels you know where uh, which one is it surface detail where you have the hells and the heavens uh, mm-hmm. around the place he actually describes the heaven pretty much as in the earlier books he's described the culture and then says that people get bored of it very quickly and just want to actually get out of heaven and die finally mm-hmm. uh, I, I the, there's that sense that there are limits to utopia it's not going to be perfect for everybody all the time What, however However you structure it, so there's there's a wonderful ambivalence all the way through
1: one of the things that you mentioned in the in the book Paul and I want to check this out with with both of you is situating uh, banks not just in the, the the uk science fiction tradition but in the tradition of what you call the Scottish fantastic mm. uh, which to most of us you know from from abroad you think of George MacDonald and Robert Louis Stevenson, all the way up to Alistair Gray. Uh, how does being part of that Scottish tradition set him apart from um, from other from British writers of the same period? Uh,
2: there was Alistair Gray, I think, was the starting point. There was a revival in Scottish writing uh, uh-huh. in, during the nineteen seventies, and Gray. Particularly, Lanark became the sort of uh, the touchstone, the 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 model that a lot of people follow. I mean, Banks himself followed it explicitly in in the Bridge, and
3: uh,
2: uh-huh. uh, you know, several several other books explicitly follow the pattern of, of Lanark. Uh, it does seem to have been a thing that was. Very much focused in Scotland, there was a, a sense of political anger uh-huh. that was that was very common in in Scotland, particularly of the way that Scotland was being treated by conservative governments. Uh, and what you got was a a way of looking at the world that changed, but was different. Uh, there were no English writers writing anything like Lanark, no English writers writing anything like The Bridge. Um mm. no no English writers like writing anything like the Irving Welsh novels because they didn't have that same, I think, political anger with him. So yeah, there the was something that, that grew up in Scotland um sometime during the nineteen seventies and found expression in a whole string of really top-notch writers.
4: Yeah, I think that Lark featured as a kind of enormous permission. It was saying
3: to everybody,
4: you can do this. And it was one of those things that nobody had given permission to do before, which was Mm -hmm. to combine what's often a very grainy realism, Uh social realism and psychological realism, with the most diverse resources of the fantastic, which went... if I recall, Lanner, correctly, through pulp science fiction, the the fantasy and, you know, Bunyan, Blake, um, Willem Reich, (laughs) (laughs) etc. And the thing to remember is that there was a growing school if you like of realist writing in Scotland um, now it kind of moved in different directions one of the classic sort of dirty realist books in Scotland is
3: No Mean City
4: about a gang warfare in Glasgow in the 30s and then you get the more genteel but still deeply sinister and dark stories of um, Muriel Spark,
3: particularly,
4: of course, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And in the 60s, a writer who, funnily enough, came from Greenock, Alan Sharp, wrote what's probably the first novel about Greenock, the town of Greenock, A Green Tree in Getty. And I remember Ian reading to me the last few paragraphs of A Green Tree in Getty Uh and saying, I'd love to write like that. And it's a very sweeping lyrical piece of prose. So
3: there were these
4: existing cultural influences, but... I think it's also worth recalling that Ian was very consciously writing as an Anglophone science fiction writer. He saw himself very much in the whole uh, American, British, and to some extent uh, Australian, etc.,
3: world of English-speaking SS.
4: And that was where he was trying to make his mark.
1: Was there a sense what? that science fiction was British? And there, there, There's actually a book by, I think, Colin Manlove called Scottish Fantasy, which was kind of a mm. history of a largely Christian fantasy. Was there a sense, and this might be true for you as well, uh, Ken, that, that, that science fiction was British and American and Australian, as you say, and that Scottish fantastic was more fantasy, Christian fantasy, uh, moral fantasy, that sort of thing?
4: Yeah, there, there's a lot of Scottish science fiction, but it's it was minor in a literary sense and a, in a sense of impact on the field. Uh-huh. If you look at the people who have been really influential in Scottish SF, um,
3: there,
4: there are people like you know Grant Miller. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Andean banks, obviously, who, you know, speak out to the wider world and are going into that market. (laughs) A lot of Scottish science fiction, I mean, I'm generalizing wildly here, Mm -hmm. but they tended to be um, a little less ambitious than that. One striking exception would be David Lindsay, A Voyage to Actors. And t- to be honest, I don't know if Ian ever read that book. But it's it's obviously part of this particularly Scottish kind of fantasy which emphasizes duality.
1: mm it's one of the curious things about the voyage to Arcturus is that for years I've I'd run into the most diverse writers who were influenced by that novel, Philip Jose Farmer, and every one of them thought they were the only one who had read the novel. Um, but but there there is that kind of grimness, uh, that kind of Schopenhauerian uh, despair at the center of that novel that. Uh, it seems to me could be echoed uh, in in some other uh, traditions of, of Scottish writing and British writing, for that matter.
2: <laughs> I think one of the things about Scottish writing is, is that sense of being, I suppose, a sort of an underdog, the unregarded extra that you know is stuck on at the northern. Mm-hmm. Point of England and is is ignored by most of most of the rest of the the island, and that that sense that they could then show England how to do it properly, show do it, do it in a way that was relevant to them, that that tied in with their own experience. Um, the grittiness, I think, comes from the fact that yeah, Scotland under Years and years of Tory misrule was a gritty place to be. It 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 was you know yeah. it wasn't an easy place. It. it I, I re, there's there's something I refer to in the book as, uh, the the satirical programme Spitting Image uh, uh, around the time that Ian was was starting writing had Mrs. Thatcher uh, in it talking about Scotland, so, you know, someone says Scotland, and her response was, ah, the test bed. Oh, really? <laughs> it, it, was, it was the place where the most unpopular political ideas were tried out uh, and usually failed. And I, I, I think there's that sense of not really belonging to to what British uh literature was doing uh, they could then forge their own identity
1: well there was a if i'm not mistaken there was a fairly popular scottish science fiction magazine in the 50s called nebula yeah. Uh, yeah. was th- did that have any influence on uh, on on this separate identity i uh, business
2: uh, i think nebula sort of disappeared from the scene quite early on and, you know it ah. A couple of generations of writers went by before you you got you know, Ian and, and Ken and um Alistair Gray even coming up mm-hmm. and, and producing things. So it's I I I could be wrong but I'm not sure that I do see a, much of a connection there.
1: Okay. Ken, did you have any influence from Nebula magazine when you were a kid?
4: None at all. I didn't know about it. (laughs) What what we got was very characteristic of our generation of science fiction writers, which is that you discover paperbacks, and you discover the yellow-spined gaunch SF Mm -hmm. in your local public library, and you read it from Aldous to Zelazny and uh, everybody in between. And then you get out a ticket in a branch library and read all the ones in that library. (laughs) And so it goes. So we got the full dose of um, Golden Age and classical SF and New Wave British SF via the New World's paperbacks and so on. Um, Paperback SF publishing was quite a big thing in the 60s and 70s, and relatively respectable. Um, So that gearish FF paper backs would get review quotes on the back from mainstream newspapers. Um, I still have many of them piled up behind me. At least one of you can probably see if you can see the video. (laughs) Uh, The The thing I wanted to kind of come back to on this about Scotland is how Ian understood it was that Scotland had done the imperial thing and had unequivocally lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, Scotland was a major part of the... the British Empire, Scots played such a huge part in it. As soldiers, as missionaries, as colonists and settlers. I mean there's a joke that to a first approximation, all Scots are Canadian. (laughs) And having been so deeply implicated and then having felt so sharply and abruptly the british post-imperial decline there could be no real question of empire nostalgia
3: in scotland
4: we bloody well knew we were defeated you know the empire we were part of was it had retreated um so you don't get that strange post-imperial nostalgia that you seem to find in both in British mainstream fiction, to a surprising extent, and also even in Ballard, who's very much a, a writer who's, who's literally lived through this experience of initially, as a child, in fact, defeat. Oh, yeah. and then retreat from empire.
3: Um,
4: I don't think you'd find the Scottish equivalent of that. One question which I've never really had a satisfactory answer for is, as Gary mentioned, Ian's SF was space opera and mm-hmm. he never showed any interest in near future science fiction, only one of the science fiction novels, if we don't count transitions, right. is is set on Earth, on a future Earth mm. that is fearsome engine. Yeah. So, I'll I think I'll throw that out to you guys. Why do you think that was? <laughs>
2: I think he saw science fiction as being a way to make the big scale grand gesture. Uh, Science fiction was implicitly something that had to be huge. You, You get reference to scale, reference to size in every single one of his science fiction books you you can't escape the scale of things in his books and i think i think he saw earth as being too small to play the role of being a venue for, for the big scale imaginative work i mean fearsome engine the only one that is set on earth mm-hmm. is it's all set in and around the ruins of a building that is just not on a human scale. It is far, far mm. too big for, you know, any human to actually accommodate. You, you get weather changes within a single room
3: <laughs>
2: in Fearsome Engine. So, as I say, it's, it's a matter of, of scale there but you can only do that in fierce dimension you can't do that as a a course in near future sf so i don't think he saw earth as
0: suiting what he wanted to do with science fiction see if i was going to make a guess at it i would have said it was a combination of things i would have said that getting clear of earth allows you to play the kind of games that he wanted to with stories, engage, engage with the kind of things that he wanted to engage with without having to actually work out how you got from here to there. You could let it go and start fresh. I think that clear break was a really important thing. I think that's why it, his, his science fiction so seldomly really came back and connected with Earth directly. He, he was able to create this enormous scale set piece uh, where you could do these incredible things and where you, you, you didn't have to allow that it was actually us. It was some altered version of us, something that wasn't actually ever us that was doing this thing. I also think in keeping with the enormous sense of humor that runs through it all, I think it was just more fun, if, you know, to be honest. I think the idea, and I, I never met Ian, I don't know him at all or didn't know him at all, Uh, But when I read the books, what I felt was here was somebody who wanted to have fun, be funny, and also be serious and be connected to what people were were about without having to worry about the historical connection. That, to me, was was the attraction of it. That was the attraction of, of Phlebus, of player of games, of use of weapons, that these stories that didn't connect back. And I think... You know, you, you'd, you'd often hear in science fiction circles some attempt to work out how you connected, you know, 20 for 20th century Earth to what happens and becomes the culture, when actually there's no real connection between them at all. And the timelines, when you look at them, don't line up remotely at all. And it's obviously deliberate, I think. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's very deliberate. Ooh.
2: Sorry,
1: Gary. No, as, 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 as if I recall, and this is something I had not caught up on my own, is that the uh, um, some of the culture wars take place in what would be, what? The late Middle Ages in our history that took place in yeah. uh, yep. 12th, 13th, 13th century. So yeah. so he is playing a little bit with that a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away kind of uh, distancing.
2: Well, the the, the, the uh the appendix, appendices in, in specifically date the events of that novel. Around, uh so it's 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 very deliberately set that way. I think it's set that way largely to say these are not humans from Earth. This is not our future. Mm-hmm. Uh, although then you get the timescales the. Every other culture novel, they all refer back to Phlebas. That is the starting point in the timeline of the novels. But uh-huh. you can always date where the, where they are. And I think the next one is about six hundred years after after the events of Phlebas, which puts it more or less around the twentieth century.
1: Hmm. Interesting. But it's it's yeah. clear that seems to be a. a um, what, what Jonathan uh, was saying, that seems to be a clear message that this, these worlds are not tethered to ours in the way that a future uh, Earth yeah. would be. And, and, to, and to some extent, uh, uh, you know, there, there, there are other strategies. The other strategy, I suppose, is to set some far in the distant on Earth and in the distant view, what Gene Wolfe does, that you don't really have to make a connection. But it mm. sounds to me like banks wanted to be more untethered than that. Oh, the only one of his space
2: operas that had any tie to us was uh, *The Algebraist*, which mm-hmm. is set well. I, I think it's 4,000 years in the future or something like that. But you know, they they, sev- they several times refer back to Earth, so it's very clear that they they're from Earth. And I think that's actually the weakest of his books so uh, you know i think actually trying
0: to tie it to us weakened the book in many ways do you think it's also a way that this thing where he's basically set up a human culture um mm-hmm. that that is not connect to our timeline and can't be you know humans as you know from from earth it's a deliberate mm-hmm. way of disconnecting from the imperial dream of a lot of space opera, particularly American space opera, that, that, that's intrinsic to that, that sort of uh, I, idea that, you know, we are the good and the right people who are going to go on to something wonderful. And if you see the, the culture itself and accept the utopia, there's a lot about it that is wonderful. Is Do you think there's that, that deliberate attempt to disconnect from, from what science fiction, particularly of the 70s and 80s, politically was doing?
3: Uh, absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yeah.
4: Ian was very conscious that he was writing against the grain of a lot of particularly American SS and at the same time against the grain of a lot of British SS which was um, what Joe Walton once described as it's always raining and everything smells of cabbage (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this real sense of gloom and Ian broke away from that. And around about the same time as his first novels came out, we we began to see other British SF writers doing the same sort of thing, although with a more rooted in earth
3: and,
4: our, and a human future. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of you know Paul McCauley and um, Stephen Baxter. Mm. And I think that it's possible that the early interzones call for what they call radical hard SF as a, a kind of escape uh, from the new wave, from the gravity well.
3: Of the mm. global,
4: had an, at least an encouraging effect on Ian. I can't swear because the, the timing of isn't quite right the interzone comes out in
2: the late 80s I think early eighties uh, uh, I, I think oh yeah I think the first interzone appeared about eighty two eighty three yeah. and the call for a radical hard SF, I think was somewhere around eighty five eighty six maybe something like that so it it's it's possible that it it, it fit in. Although I think, you know, we, we shouldn't ignore the fact that I think you were talking about how Lanark gave permission to Scottish writers. We, we shouldn't forget how much permission Fleabas gave to British science fiction writers. It, it was Fleebus that suddenly said, it's OK, you can go out into space and you can do the big adventure. And it doesn't have to be right wing or American or familiar. You can make it different. You can make it left-wing. You can make it interesting
1: and fun. Um, and write, Yeah, I'd write with genuine wit, which was yeah. something that's – just the first thing that struck me the first time I read a Banks novel is that he's, it's a, he, it's, he's a funny writer.
0: He mm. What I was going to say, yeah. though, is it's, what's easy to lose track of is how utterly at odds with the science fiction of the time – a book like Consider Phoebus was. I mean, really, if you if you think about it, the, the, you know, there was a lot of old-school science fiction and the writers of old-school science fiction still being very active at the time. Niven and Pornell oh. were writing, Clark was writing, uh, Niven was writing Solo, Fred Pohl was writing. Uh, I think Heinlein was still producing his last books, if I remember correctly or may just have done so. Um, mm. And then, you know, sort of, there was the cyberpunk stream, you know, the Gibsons and the Sterlings and the Humanists, but there was nothing that was really, until, that I can think of, until Ian came along, that took this core, seminal, heart of science fiction and kind of dragged it in, in, into the modern era and flipped it around and showed it from a different side. It was almost, seems to me, or it seemed to me when I read it at the time, almost too so generous. There was no, nothing like it
2: yeah I, I looking back later i can see uh things like mike harrison's uh centauri device as as being a sort of progenitor in a way but no it 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 was it was a total change of pace uh because everything everything that was seen as space opera before then was seen as the work of dinosaurs <laughs> that was that was what was that was the past that was the old way of doing it it was seen as a a very conservative form of literature it was seen as dull Uh, it was seen as rehashing things that had been written before for the last previous 50 years and with making no advances you you couldn't write a groundbreaking new work of science fiction that was a space opera because it was inevitable. Space opera had to be old-fashioned. And then Consider Phlebus comes along, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, every every assumption that we made about what science fiction was and every assumption we made about what space opera was was turned on its head. Um, you could make it modern. You could make it relevant. You could make it
1: funny. I think one of the things that several years ago, um, when Locust did an issue on the the new space opera, and I think Ken, you may have contributed to that issue, yep. but the the yep. two the two titles that came up again and again were um, were, were, were the Harris the Centauri device and Considered Fleebus, mm. and I don't remember who said what, but somebody said the whole new space opera began with the Centauri device, and then somebody else pointed out, well, nothing happened when the Centauri device came out to create the shift. The shift occurred after Consider Phlebus. Yeah, it was 10 years
2: after Centauri device before Phlebus. Right. uh, Right. More than 10 years. So...
3: You
4: you have to remember that Ian read the Centauri device. Yeah. yeah, I know for sure that it influenced him. Yeah. It certainly influenced me. One of my first meetings with Mike Harrison, I said... something you should never say to a writer basically, which was that I really liked your early work. (laughs) (laughs) And I told him...
2: Mike would have loved that. (laughs) (laughs) He
4: did, yes. I told him how much the Centauri device had meant and the Pastel City Mm. and the committed men and of course all the short stories like Running Down, which I think is the the purest essence of new wave British science fiction. And oh, also Coming From Behind, that's a really violent little story about mm. an alien invasion. Yeah. And all of these showed to me and Ian in our teens and twenties that you could do interesting things with the traditional forms of of science fiction and fantasy, do new things. And Harrison said, I don't know if it was in that conversation, but I've picked it up from his, his kind of, um, his own recollection and explanation, was that he was trying to, you know, to deconstruct these cliche genres from the inside. Mm. And he, he yes. worked his way through the uh the far future science fantasy mm. the space opera and the post-catastrophe novel and having twisted them into unrecognizable shapes <laughs> he just walked away his his work here was done as it were
3: <laughs>
4: and i was certainly naive enough and i think ian was almost naive enough when we read them first, to read them straight and say, wow, you can do this with these genres. Not,
1: not, not realizing that the intention was to destroy the genre from within. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yes, and it's, it's funny that when Mike Harrison did come back to writing science fiction, he came back with a space
3: opera,
2: yeah. like. I, which I, th- I think is very, very clearly influenced by Ian's work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think you can separate them in some ways.
0: Well, this, some of this must also have driven your own work, Ken, like when you were write, writing The Fall Revolution. I mean, it came out, oh, you know what, about seven years afterwards. But, you know, obviously you and Ian were talking about writing. You were very aware of his work, and I assume you were writing at the same time.
4: Yeah, what happened was that Ian started writing seriously and trying very hard and sending books off repeatedly to publishers at a time when I was trying and failing to become a scientist Mm -hmm. and occasionally writing some pathetic derivative little story and sending it off to first New Worlds and Interzone. And when I had finished... Uh, my what became an M. thesis in the late 80s, um, which has uh, since languished unread in Burnell University Library. I felt I'd paid my debt to society and I could at least convince myself and Ian that I could actually write a novel. And I was certainly inspired by Ian's example and I enjoyed his books as they were being written and then when they came out. But I don't think we directly influenced each other's writing. We we kind of encouraged each other. And are not necessarily... The sort of... Oh egging each other on, as it were, rather than providing useful criticism. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, that's
3: good.
2: <laughs> but you were Something providing useful criticism, weren't you, Ken? I mean, you, you know, use of weapons wouldn't exist without your criticisms of it. Of it.
4: Yeah, in a, in a certain sense, that was... That, that's probably the, the only instance where I actually affected what Ian wrote in that he had written this first draft with an incredibly artificial structure in which the climax to the story, to both stories, actually, occurs in the middle of the book, which is a rather major structure. (laughs) And by sheer chances, I was reading through the manuscript, which I was trying to persuade Ian could be rescued, which he didn't think could be at all, and making
3: uh,
4: slashing lines through long passages of purple prose and so on, I
3: I suddenly realized that
4: this was the real problem with a novel, and having, by sheer chance, having just read a novel by E.C. Tubb called The Winds of Gas. Ah! You said you didn't remember the title! (laughs) Yes. He woke counting seconds. And the image in the start of that book is a man who is going into cold sleep, and he counts himself down backwards before the anesthetic kicks in. And when he wakes up counting forwards, he knows he survived the trip. uh
3: uh-huh.
4: And that image of numbers going down and then it going up uh, was in my mind. And I said to Ian, why don't you tell one story backwards and the other forwards?
3: Hmm.
4: And he looked at me with a can of McEwan's ale halfway through his lips <laughs> and said, something like that's so crazy it might just work <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that explains the structure of the novel with the hmm. Roman numeral chapters going backward and the numbered chapters going forward yeah yeah. That's,
4: but that was my sole contribution
1: <laughs> it's fairly important I would say and congratulations hmm. on remembering the title of well pretty yes. much any sea tub novel <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. But, but I mean, so, so
2: the, the interesting thing is that Banks was obviously open to the idea of an experimental structure in the novel because uh-huh. you know, he, he did it in The Bridge. Uh, he did it in, in Transition. He, he did it in Fearsome Engine. You know, it, he obviously liked the idea of playing with structure, playing with the shape of the novel. I don't, you know, he couldn't. Have, he 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 could have followed Ken's suggestion if he wasn't up to that idea of really mm. radically yes. changing the structure of the novel.
1: Well, I'm curious as to how much of his, uh, especially as as the series went on, how much of his motivation was to try different things. I mean, once you have an established uh, you, you as they call them in franchise world now the your established universe you've got the mm-hmm. culture uh, is is there an impulse then to to want to try formal experiments to want to not just do another culture novel but to reinvent it uh every time out well there are
2: i think up to about look to windward he was there mm-hmm. were several experiments i mean You know, Accession is basically an epistolary novel.
1: Well, yeah, that's odd.
2: Uh, And then you get uh, Inversions, which is a culture novel that never directly mentions the culture. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So, you know, they they would explain that. I actually think the last three culture novels, uh, Matter, Surface Detail, Piedra and Sonata, are actually in many ways the most traditionally structured, most traditionally written mm-hmm. of, uh, of his books. So it's sort of like there's a tailing off of the idea of experimentation later on.
0: Oh. Oddly, do you think that's why they became somewhat better uh, received within fandom? In, particularly in the United States?
4: It's possible. I think that the, the, the thing that is also happening in these, in these final <laughs> culture novels is an increasing self criticism of the culture mm. um, and an exploration of its limits. In it you so saw that for example, the hydrogen sonata is about subliming which has been mm-hmm. kind of a background possibility and until then. And it's the first time that Ian seriously set about exploring what it meant. Um, the. Okay. Can I just go back? Another yeah. thing that
3: has uh, struck me
4: is that with accession, Ian caught up with cyberpunk and computers, computers and all that within the culture novels. Because in the novels that he wrote, the first drafts of, back in the uh, 70s and 80s, you don't have quite this sense of information, high-density information, and interconnection and communication. Mm. The the interface between the minds and the characters in uh, Phlebas, and I think in use of weapons too is even called a terminal. Which, you know, quite directly reflects the state mm-hmm. of computer technology when you have uh-huh. writing it. And suddenly with accession you've got um a novel that's Got far more view, viewpoint. You've got the viewpoints of the minds for the first time. Mm. You've got an an attempt to look at how what mind communication looks like, and so on. And he builds on that in his subsequent culture novels.
2: Well, I got to remember also that Accession was the first new culture novel. He'd written exactly. since he got published. Ah. So I it see. was over It was over 10 years since he'd previously written a culture novel when he sat down to write Accession. It's, it's not there in the time frame of when they published, but in, in terms of when they were written.
3: Yeah. You know? yeah.
2: Because uh, Phlebus, which was the, the last of the first set of culture novels, was must have been written about 83, because Wasp Factory yep. came out in 84. Uh, and then Accession came out in, what, 94? Six. Something like that? 96? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's at least a ten year gap between the writing of those two culture novels. It's bound to change in that time.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, obviously, I mean, he was heavily invested in both the quote-unquote mainstream or less obviously science-fictional novels and Mm. even a work like The Algebraist, which kept him away from the culture. And I guess there must have been a question across what was 25 years. I mean, that's the thing that surprised me looking at this, that, I mean, he wrote, uh, well, published, not really, he wrote them earlier. He published culture novels across a 25-year period. It had Mm. to have been challenging to keep it fresh and worthwhile to come back to. Mm Mm-hmm i would have thought yeah yeah i mean
2: there was a time around the time that uh look to windward came out uh which was what 99 2000 he was he 2000 he was saying in interviews things like uh yep well i think this could be my last culture novel or i've basically i've run out of ideas for what i i can do with them or i could just rehash (laughs) some of the old ideas but there was, there was a sense in the way he was talking about it that it had come to an end with Look to Windward. And hmm. again, there was a gap. You know, it, it was another, not 10 years, but quite a long gap between Look to Windward and Matter.
0: Mm. Yes. Which I think
2: was 2008.
0: Yes, exactly. So yeah.
2: you know, an eight-year an eight gap there.
0: Like one thing I'm curious to ask you both is, I mean, you you, pre- you touched on this in some ways, Paul, by saying what you thought Ian's least successful book was for you. I'm curious, where do you yeah. both think he hit his straps? What was the high What was the high water in your opinions? <sighs>
2: <laughs> there were four, maybe five books that he wrote that I think are absolutely as good as they could get with that the top for me is look to Windward*. i think that was his best not best culture novel uh and use of weapons because i just love the the daring of the structure of that novel
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and fearsome engine which is one of the more underrated of his novels but i think was also a work of of real daring and because he was daring he he achieved an awful lot and then besides those you've got to to add in the bridge which even though it wasn't a science fiction novel is a science fiction novel Uh (laughs) and transition which again is i think one of the more underrated of his books but again i think was i think that was the last novel where he was really trying to be experimental didn't necessarily succeed, but uh, I again, I always rate people trying to do something different.
1: I remember when Transition came out, and it's one of the few I had a chance to review for Locus, and there was a lot of pushback against yeah. that novel in the UK, yeah. it seemed. Part of the problem was that it was published as
2: Ian Banks in the UK and Ian M. Banks in America, Right. And I think that meant that the American audience saw it as a science fiction work and the British audience thought well this is supposed to be a mainstream book but it's not. <laughs> and therefore there was that sense of not knowing how what to make of the book.
0: Yeah. I'm curious Ken what do you think what would you what would you have picked as Ian's high watermark looking back?
4: <clears throat> That's a very difficult question to answer. I think that my personal favourite would be use of weapons not so much for the structure but for the sheer exuberance of the writing Um, and Ian wrote that novel as quite a young man and is full of a young man's enthusiasm for life as well as a well read and thoughtful person's Um, awareness of the dark side of life if you like and so that's it's probably too personally close if you like for me to judge it objectively Mm -hmm. Um, the ones I most enjoyed after that I guess would be accession and matter and the Hydrogen Sonata, I enjoyed and liked, but you got the feeling—certainly got the feeling—with the Hydrogen Sonata that perhaps this was the last culture novel, which it wasn't Ian's intention for it to be. He had a new idea for a culture novel. Oh. Which, unfortunately, he left no more than the most... the sexual conceit of, if you like. But no, no characters, no plot, no... <laughs> so, uh, mercifully, nothing can be done with it.
0: Which is not a bad thing. Um, mm.
4: The... I, I also would like to... Bring in the mainstream novels because
3: I, you know, Paul has discussed them
4: and they do show a similar sort of sensibility at work. Yeah. yeah. Even The Crow Road, which is very much a family saga, is still a family saga from the point of view of. Um,
2: the sort of person who reads science fiction, if you like. Mm-hmm. But, but, but the first line, it was the day my grandmother exploded. It's one of the few <laughs> really memorable lines in literature.
0: <laughs> I love that yes. book so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
4: And the, take the business. The mm. business is really a science fiction novel of the yeah. subgenre secret history. Hmm. Because the central conceit of the business is that a single company has managed to exist since the early Roman Empire
3: <laughs>
4: without anyone noticing. <laughs>
3: mm.
2: <laughs> if, you, if you like, the business is an attempt to write a culture novel set on Earth. Yeah. You know, the business becomes a sort of <laughs> culture.
4: Yes, with all the same problems of intervention mm. of using people and so on yeah mm.
0: the same moral issues of a. Yeah. yeah
3: yeah
0: i'm curious as well what do you both think keeps if you think it does what do you think <laughs> keeps ian's work fresh today i mean i realize it's not been that long really since he you know sort of he, his final novel came out uh, so it seems perhaps, you know, sort of early, but I mean, it seems there's no no lack of interest, no slackening off of engagement with his work. And it still seems to me, and it may just be a matter of age, but I don't think so. It still seems very fresh and very relevant. I think there are two
2: things. The first, and I think possibly the most ex- important, is simply the exuberance. Of the books uh you know the the, the exuberance of the invention, the exuberance of the humor the the exuberance that comes through every page you read uh, it 's very difficult to read an Ian bank 's book without a smile on your mm-hmm. face that's- you know it, it's it 's just that sense of fun th- the other thing I think is they do feel like they 're relevant, and I think that 's important it, it feels like they're touching on matters that still concern us. We still see ourselves reflected in them. They are books still about us and about our world.
1: I wonder if, uh, um, Ken were you going to add to that? Um, um,
4: Just a general agreement, yeah. I I think that going out, it just struck me there is there is one Banks novel you can you can very easily read without a smile on your face and that's A Song of Stone <laughs> which is a relentlessly grim novel mm,
3: um, yes
4: but even that is, will unfortunately remain relevant yeah because it's about betrayal civil war and so on so
1: on I wonder if uh, some of the one one of the issues that came up a little bit in your book, Paul, was the possibility of of misplaced relevance, I guess, uh, and uh, by, by which I mean this, because this has happened. I know it's happened with your fiction, Ken, and it's happened to some extent with Ian's fiction that it became quite popular with the American libertarian movement. Um, and I gather from uh, from Paul, your interview, uh, the, the, the interview that you included. Mm. Uh, with Banks is that he was rather yeah. bemused by this attention
2: well yes because I don't think you can take that sort of reading of his book without well failing to read the books They're just <laughs> it's just you know completely contrary to virtually every single word he wrote um I honestly continue to be astounded by how poor many readers are how <laughs> how they will they will read according to a a a preconceived set of ideas and find them even in works that specifically contradict
1: oh, part- those ideas uh, isn't that partly the power of genre though if you have a group of readers who who think okay this looks on the surface like a larry niven novel so therefore it must be a larry niven novel no matter what it actually says
0: is that a strength or a weakness i would call it a weakness <laughs> i mean these, these are misreaders i mean uh i i realize that people tend not to want to listen to what an author says about their own work, there's this idea that, you know, Mm. the author doesn't know. But, I mean, again, I didn't know Ian Banks, but I read a couple of interviews and it was pretty clear that that, I mean, apart from the fact that it's blatantly clear in the text that it is antithetical to at least the American libertarian movement, it appeared to be antithetical Mm. to what he believed as well, very, very strongly, and to what he thought he was doing as well. You think that'd be fair, Ken?
1: Absolutely. Well, Ken, yeah, because you've gotten a lot of attention from libertarians as well.
4: Well, there's more excuse in that case because I was genuinely influenced by libertarians and to a degree uh-huh. still am, and that I take their a lot of their ideas with uh, the star Frank quite clearly about anarcho-capitalism.
1: The star front, uh, right. yes.
4: It's still pushing it uh, beyond that into uh, kind of maybe even into accelerationism. But you know, the fall revolution books are obsessed with socialism and with libertarianism, and I've tried to move away from these since. But the I, I I kind of. I, I do see what some American libertarians see that's congenial in them. Uh-huh. It's, not, it's not that I've pandered to that, but that I'm arguing in their space and arguing with some understanding, I think, and sympathy in, in their space.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And also I have lots of in-jokes. <laughs> of uh, um, whereas Ian was adamantly opposed to all those ideas of the free market, of capitalism and so on. Mm. And I should know because I tried to persuade him to take them seriously and extremely dismissive of them. And what I would like to say, kind of to sum up about this
3: though, is that it's a
4: wonderful quote from the first English
3: uh,
4: communist, basically, a guy called Gerard Winstanley, who wrote the first political program for something recognizably like uh, socialism Mm -hmm. that could be brought about by political action rather than the return of Jesus or whatever. And it's called The Law of Freedom in a Platform. And somewhere in Winstanley's writing, he says that there is no middle path between these two, for a man must be either a true and free Commonwealth man or a monarchical, tyrannical royalist. And Ian was a true and free Commonwealth man.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that probably seems, given we've been here for for an hour or so probably as good a point to, to, to wind up as, as we're going to come across but so first of all I'd like to thank you Ken for making the time to join us I know it's not been technically easy but we very much appreciate you making the time <laughs>
4: <laughs> thank you thank you for having me It's been a wonderful conversation. It
0: has indeed. And 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 thank you to Paul for making the time to join us again. It's enormously appreciated. Oh,
2: it's a great pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: And I I, I suppose I should take a moment to mention that Ken's latest series, The Corporation Wars, is out now. Dissidents and Insurgents are out in the world, and the final book, Emergence, is coming soon, I think. And obviously... September, yes. September. And obviously the oh, book that, that brought us to here, uh, Paul's book about E and M banks or Ian Banks, is uh, just out from University of Illinois and can be bought for from all online books sit, sellers and everywhere else. It, it, should you be interested, oh. and you should. It's a really terrific book. So thank on you. that, thank you both again. And Gary, I will talk to you next week.
1: Next week, and until then, this has been the Good Street Podcast.